You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, Seaspiracy! Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook. Or send us an email at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at l-u-e-e-podcast.com. My name is Ashlyn Noble, and I'll be your host today. With me on the show, I have Jem Newman. Hi. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. And Lauren Bailey. Hello. We decided that we haven't done a movie review episode in a long time, and uh, let me tell you, doing a movie review where you don't actually get to sit down and watch the movie with your co-hosts is less fun. It's a true story. Yep. So we have uh, each watched this Seaspiracy documentary, which is available on Netflix, uh, separately in our own homes, and we are now meeting over Google Hangout to talk about it. From the makers of Cowspiracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Laura, you watched Cowspiracy, right? I... I'm sure that I did, but I remember almost nothing about it. But I've watched a lot of like vegan slash non-GMO documentaries over a period of time. So they all bleed together. Right. So I had heard. uh... Get it? Heard? Cows? Oh, God. You should be. Nope. (laughs) H-E-A-R-D. Bad joke. No laughs for you. Insert bovinine (laughs) drop here. Um, I had heard that this was another one of those conspiracy theory movies where everything was pretty far-fetched and ridiculous, and uh, spoiler alert, I don't think any of us really felt that way. Yeah. Shall we start off with our kind of general impressions, I guess? Yeah. So I felt like this guy is real bad at interviews (laughs) and trying to get what he wants and probably kind of a dick. But the central message of the film, which is maybe don't eat fish if you don't want to support a shitty industry, and also capitalism is bad, were reasonable messages. Yeah. Uh, Like, I feel like your criticisms of him, you know, being a jerk and not being good at interviewing, those are part and parcel of being a documentarian. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> like, no, you can do it well. What about like uh, David Attenborough? I don't know. I think Jem was saying that those are skills that are part and parcel of being a documentarian. Oh, no, no. I, I, I was saying it how, how Ashlyn, uh, you, you know, like, like a lot of the a lot of the tactics used in this film, like the kind of ambush interview style. The Michael Morian. Yeah, yeah exactly. It was all very Michael Murray. And, you know, there were there were some leaps of logic and dodgy statistics uh, employed but i would say far less egregious than even the average informative documentary i mean every documentary is a propaganda piece you know you when you're spending this amount of time on a single project you're unlikely to come at it from a neutral position and often there is no such thing as a neutral position i mean you can look at the recent documentary from Ken Burns about the Vietnam War to to see that attempting to take a neutral stance on something often 
just ends up reinforcing the the status quo narrative. Right. Nobody goes into making a documentary without an agenda, because yeah. why would you? Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I don't know who Ken Burns is. Is he very famous? Should I know this person? He's a documentarian. He, and he, he makes very long, like multi-part <laughs> documentaries. Like he, he can't, I don't know if he is capable of making something that is less than like 10 hours. His baseball one is excruciating. <laughs> <laughs> he, he is, I, I guess, kind of probably the, the most famous middle brow American documentarian. You see his stuff a lot on PBS. Yeah. 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 So, so I felt like th- like this was kind of par for the course in terms of the way a documentary is put together. You know, it's it's not going to be ironclad. It's not going to uh, have all of its ducks in a row. Uh, it is being made by somebody who is not a scientist and not a an economist and not you know a subject matter expert, but. You know, when you compare it to the the recent Oscar-winning documentary about a guy who felt sad so left his family to harass an octopus for a year, I'd say it's it, it's not bad. What? <laughs> yeah, it's called My Octopus Teacher. It's on Netflix. Don't bother. I had heard the name of it, but I just <laughs> thought it was some. Wow. Okay. Now I know the premise of that movie. Yeah. I cannot unknow that. Sorry, love. It, yeah. Only. It's, uh, white guy sad feelings. You know, Oscar bait. Yeah. Now I just want to talk about that documentary, (laughs) but but that's that's for another show. I love how like we give awards to people who are like, don't deal with your emotions in an appropriate human way. Instead, flee society and go harass nature. This is appropriate. We will reward you with a golden statue for this. I'm sad. I feel like I feel like I'm not being a good father to my son. So I'm going to leave him for a year to learn how to do free diving. Anyway, I I think that what really sets this documentary apart from other more mainstream documentaries is not the fact that it is worse on the science. I think it's that it is taking a stance that is ultimately antithetical to the status quo, and that results in, I would say, uh, disproportionate antagonism toward it. But that said, like, I, I would be happy to discuss some of the criticisms of it. You know, like, even from the name, I think calling it Seaspiracy is silly. Argumentative from the jump. Yeah, it, you know, it is. And it, it is, you know, when the Seaspiracy is uh, revealed in the film, it is essentially that dolphin-safe tuna labels and other sustainable fishing practice labels, sort of blue washing labels. These labels have a vested interest in licensing their label to people who sell fish, and they make money, they make most of their money from selling their certified sustainable fishing label or certified dolphin safe tuna. They get their money. It's 80% of their income comes from licensing. Yeah. Um, and so they have a vested interest in certifying as many products as possible as, you know, dolphin safe or what have you, uh, without laying out the funds for actually ensuring that it is safe. And there are cogent arguments presented for the fact that it is not safe. Uh, but this is kind of framed 
I would say more by the title of the documentary than by any conspiracy wall. He doesn't do a big bringing it all together scene. No. And, yeah. and, and I think that that's to the film's credit, you know, like I, I think it's savvy marketing to call it Seaspiracy, I guess. And, and it's framed a little bit like a conspiracy, but I think it's pretty clear, at least from my watch of it, that this is just basic market incentives. This is the kind of thing that you see happening in organic certification. This is the kind of thing that you see happening in free trade certifications. This is the kind of thing that you see happening in all of these kind of market certifications. And the core message of you shouldn't trust these businesses and you probably shouldn't trust like these massive NGOs either is fine. And of course, bringing it back to Michael Moore, of course, if you barge into an office that has not agreed to do an interview with you and demand an interview, they will ask you to leave. Like, Especially when they previously denied your earlier request. You know, like, right? you know, that's, that's, sort of the kind of annoying documentary showmanship that like everybody knows what's happening there. Charlton Heston is not going to talk to you, man. That's fine. Another branch of the conspiracy that I found was that uh, this Marine Stewardship Council, this MSC, whose office he barged into, he also made a point to say that they were founded by Unilever, which also owns fisheries. Right. So they are not an independent council, which was also part of the conspiracy. Sure. Yeah consolidation is bad there is a bunch of astroturfing that happens in mm -hmm. major corporations that's bad i like i don't know if that's this or whether you know i don't know one of the points against the film i feel is like many documentaries they have taken a lot of the interviews out of their context and made the people seem like black and white villains for example, the, the guy from the Dolphin Safe Tuna label, like you watched him in the documentary say over and over, yeah, we can't guarantee that they don't kill dolphins, that we can't guarantee anything. We can't, we don't watch them. We, we do nothing. And apparently, like any science nerd, the interview was very long and this guy just badgered him into saying, no, we can't guarantee anything because yeah. we can't guarantee yeah. anything in the whole world. Oh yeah, you could hear the no annoyance in his voice. I was listening yeah. to that and just going, this guy hates this, this documentarian. <laughs> and of course you would. Yeah, well, so I generally get turned off by any documentary that's all about I wanted to find out and I just learned. I'm like, maybe you should have done some research before you started turning on your camera. I don't know. That's just a, a personal point. Yeah, the beginning of the documentary starts out with basically like, I loved the ocean and I loved watching all of these documentarians like Jacques Cousteau. So I just decided to be one. Like, yeah, the, the people that he was talking about are subject matter experts, and that's why their documentaries are so interesting and compelling. Yeah. Part of my notes say, dude needs to watch Sequest DSV and Star Trek Four. <laughs> yeah. To hunt a species to extinction is not logical. Whoever said the human race was logical. Did uh, Lauren or Laura have any initial impressions before we get more into the uh, <laughs> nitty gritty? Well, I said the things about Sequest and Star Trek, so got those <laughs> out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> there was very pretty visuals, basic ocean facts. Just reading my notes here verbatim. I don't like modern documentaries that center the filmmaker. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Although he did seem very young, but very sincere in the way that young men with privilege feel very sincere when they finally get a something that they get their teeth into. I'm just wondering who funded him flying to all these places around the world and 
he had all this wonderful camera equipment and looking at the date on the sea world video that he was in when he was one years old he is not yet 30 yeah i think he said when he was 22 he started making his first film or something like that yeah. and Haha, <laughs> first suggestion when I type in Seaspiracy, who is Seaspiracy funded by? <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> Big vegan. Our funding comes from foundations, more than 10,000 individuals, and a small number of responsible companies. Ooh. Yeah, no, so, so that's a, a fair question, though. The sort of core thrust of the film is that there's no such thing as sustainable corporate fishing. Now, this is often kind of twisted in criticisms of the film to mean that there is no such thing as sustainable fishing and that therefore um, this documentary is inherently um, racist uh, because uh, they expect, you know, uh, people who subsist on fishing for their livelihood, you know, in other parts of the world to, to stop fishing, which is sort of, if you've watched the film, kind of the opposite of what he's saying. Yeah, I was actually really impressed. At one point, I turned to Lauren and I was like, is he actually reasonably suggesting that companies should, like, fuck off and let indigenous peoples fish and eat the things that are available to them? And I, he was! Yeah. It, it did bug me that the only indigenous sort of whaling fishing that he really went into in depth was in the Faroe Islands. Yeah. There were many more in the areas of the world that he was already in, like in Thailand or in Somalia, or um, even coming to Canada, but he didn't come over to Canada, that would have had a bit more impact. He was in one place that was tropical. He spent a bit more time. He was in Japan for the, for the dolphin cull, and then he was in um, Thailand, which is where he spoke to the people who were basically slaves on the fishing boats on the shrimp boats yeah and he was in somalia with the sea shepherd for a while or off the coast of somalia yeah maybe that's what i'm thinking of i'm i'm not sure anyway i thought there was a a relatively short scene where it was depicting like a, a coastal fishing village in somewhere quite tropical i believe that was uh near somalia oh okay so this specific question actually was posed to him after the film came out. Basically, the film suggests that there's, uh, as we were saying, there's no such thing as sustainable corporate fishing. And so instead, Oceana and other organizations focusing on environmental stewardship of the oceans should recommend that people do not eat fish because these sustainable practices are demonstrated to actually not be sustainable and to be contributing to the uh, collapse of ecosystems and so instead of just saying people should eat more sustainable fish uh, which could be parsed either as eat more fish and make that extra fish sustainable or <laughs> when you eat fish make that fish sustainable fish Th that's bad advice and they should just say don't eat fish you know unless unless you have to and so um i'll quote here from the the guardian article he said he did not expect people who were facing poverty, hunger, and malnutrition around the world to reduce or eliminate their fish consumption, and that these were not the people looking on Oceana's website for advice on sustainability. So that, that's the core thrust of the film. You should reduce your fish consumption or eliminate it entirely from your diet. And the, the film ends with them kind of showcasing these vegan fish and seafood uh, alternatives. And I do wonder... <laughs> as Ashlyn brought up. I do wonder whether they are one of the 
small mm-hmm. number of companies sponsoring the documentary, which would be a conflict of interest. But a reasonable sponsor. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but they definitely should have mentioned that. Yes. So. Yeah. Absolutely. So how do people feel about doing like some rounds of here's a point? What do people think about it? Sure. So the film started out by talking about plastic. He was initially thinking that plastic was going to be the biggest issue facing the oceans and he wanted to tackle the issue of plastic. So he was talking about plastic and he became one of those people who uh, took reusable silverware and straws and drinking glasses everywhere and would cold call restaurants to hassle them about straws. Oh, that was what so an annoying. Guy. <laughs> oh, I can't stand him. My note says, oh God, straws. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they did a bunch of uh, images of the plastic in the ocean. And one of the things that he gets into is that he claims that fishing debris is half or more than half of all of the plastic in the ocean. One of the things that was fact-checked fairly often in the articles that I read afterwards was this 50% stat. Apparently that's based on old data and it's currently more like 20% is fishing debris, which is still a shit ton of plastic, like so much plastic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it is very deadly, the nets and stuff, but a lot of the bulk of that plastic is things like buoys and things that are just massive and also aren't breaking down as fast as things like... Like plastic bags and plastic straws. Yeah. And so the other scientist that he was badgering, or maybe she was, she was a policy person, um, about the fishing gear, like she kept saying, like, well, but but no, it's microplastics that are the the bulk of it. And so she was working with newer data than he was, and he was just he would not give up on the statistic, and that really annoyed me. Yeah. Yeah. I think he got her fired because <laughs> she ended up breaking down, and he went and talked to her boss, and her boss said. Who said that? Oh, that whole exchange. Yeah, Yeah. that was uncomfortable. Well, it was your PR person. And I could tell the second he left that building, the boss went from one (laughs) office to the other and went up one side of her and down the other. Yeah, she was sure pissed. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that was... You got her saying, what on film? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) A video that I watched after, done by a marine biologist, it was her take on this video. Um, She has a YouTube channel called Marine Science Cafe. One of her points with that as well was that he was he was taking data from the Pacific garbage patch. And so that one specifically does have a higher amount of fishing related gear in it compared to other parts. And so he was extrapolating that 50 percent, whereas she was saying that, yeah, like you're saying, Lauren, 20. And this scientist was saying, like, it's about 10 percent or something. So it's not that it's not a lot it's just not 50 percent and as a lot of people have pointed out people in the fisheries industries are not just tossing giant nets overboard like they're not just leave like there are things that are being left in that but they are also expensive so they a lot of them are trying to i would like to interject that jeff bezos could pay to clean up the pacific garbage patch and end world hunger and still be the richest man in the world just so we know I am I'm less convinced by that, uh, Laura, because I like I do think if the net is still good, they're not going to toss it in the ocean. But as soon as it gets to the point where it is cheaper to throw it away than to 
repair it if they're even repairable. They are just going to throw it into the ocean because that is way cheaper than bringing it home and paying to have it recycled or something. Yeah, maybe. That, that is, you know, my cynicism speaking, but... I'm kind of with Jem on this. They wouldn't bring home something that they can't use again, especially when there's an entire unregulated garbage dump that they're floating in. Yeah. I, I think it's probably true that uh, his statistics are, are bad. Like, there's another one that I'm sure we'll get to right away um, where he's also working with uh, quite old data. But, you know, it is it is still a significant contributor, and microplastics are a big deal. Macroplastics are, you know, also a big deal in, in different ways. You know, like, they're not, they're not being integrated into the animal's uh, diet, uh, but they are, you know, tangling them up. Agreed. I have one note here that says 85% of the world's oxygen comes from whales? Question mark? What? No, I don't remember it this. It wasn't oh, whales. yeah, it was, yeah. It wasn't, did he say whales? He said, was I think it, he was talking about seal, algae. Yeah, yeah, like algae and kelp and so aquatic plants. What he was saying is that every time a whale surfaces, I, I guess that's when they excrete their waste. I guess is what he was saying, and that's what feeds all the the algae and stuff like that, which makes all the oxygen. That was his thing. So if the whales are gone, then all that plankton's not getting fed. Oh, I see. I see. That, that that was his reason. Okay, that makes more sense. But it was still just like, but part of the thing that was annoying was that he was talking about whales surfacing and they surface to breathe. I don't know if whales always excrete when they're surfacing. I have no, I'm not a cetacean specialist. I have no idea, but it was showing a picture of a whale like breathing. And I'm like, but that's not waste. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Okay. So, so here's uh, one thing that uh, I did want to bring up. He spends a lot of the film talking about all of the the destruction that's being caused by the fishing industry. And a lot of it specifically focuses on trawling, which is the practice of basically dropping big weighted nets uh, to the ocean floor and just dragging these huge nets along the floor, scraping up the sea floor and kind of pulling anything there up, up to the surface. The analogy that he makes is it's it's like clear cutting the ocean. Yeah, he compares it directly to clear-cutting the rainforest, so... And, and this is, um, you know, a problem, and it is destroying ecosystems, and it'll uh, kill everything down there. A bunch of, bunch of coral gets torn up and like that. But during these discussions, he talks about how it isn't plastics that we need to worry about. It isn't global warming that we need to worry about. It is fishing. And he frames it like... Honestly, I don't think plastics rise to the level of worth worrying about priority-wise compared to overfishing, you know, if you have to prioritize one or the other. But I was thoroughly unconvinced by his sort of offhand dismissal of climate change as a major existential threat to the ecosystems of the Earth. I don't know, like it really got my back up early on, just kind of dismissing climate change out of hand. For sure, even just like the acidification yeah. that is directly caused by global warming. Like even if we, there's no plastic in the ocean and there's, there's no, no fishing, fishing, they're still going to be super fucked if it becomes unlivable. Yep, yep. Yep, that was a bad take. Okay. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> yes. I must have um, not taken notes and or went into a fugue state if he did talk about anything about global warming because I have nothing about it, which shows how much he mentioned it. I think I'd take it not as extreme as you, Jem. I think that he didn't frame it very well. I didn't take it that he was saying global warming wasn't something to worry about, but it's that without the fish, it's 
a bigger problem than what we think. Okay. So because he made a whole point of how he was talking about like the fish help to move the the water like the the warmer water down to cool it like they they go up and down through the water columns and so it helps to regulate the temperature of the ocean so if you have fewer fish going up and down then the temperature rises faster at the top or something like that i don't know exactly but he was saying that the fish are an integral part of that system and so i i didn't take it as though he was saying don't worry about all this other global warming stuff. It's only fish that's going to kill the planet. I thought, I took it as though he was saying, this is part of this. Okay. But. I definitely took it as like, fishing is a more significant threat to the planet than global warming. But I may have misinterpreted he it. He was, so he, the point I thought he was making was that, and again, I don't think this is correct, but that fishing is a bigger threat than, say, fossil fuels. That he, he said that, but he didn't say global warming specifically. Okay. Like, he was, he, he was acknowledging that global warming's a problem, but he was saying that the loss of fish and the overfishing is a bigger problem than, say, the fossil fuels. Yeah, uh, I, I know the fossil fuels came up specifically in terms of, like, oil spills and like that, and I yeah. think he made the, the good point that if you're worried about marine life, uh, worrying about massive pipelines that burst in the Gulf of Mexico, for example, that's a drop in the proverbial ocean uh, compared to the habitat destruction that happens as a result of fisheries. So I actually wanted to talk about the trawling in a different context. Um, another statistic that he misused was that due to fishing, the oceans will be empty yeah. by, mm -hmm. what did he say? 2048. 2048. So this is based on an old paper, which the author now says is not good data. Yeah. I believe he said that the data when he made the paper was already five years old, and it's now 15 years out of date, and a lot of places have instituted a lot of measures. And also... The paper was only looking at how many fish stocks will be at 10% or less of their historic highs in 2048. Not that the ocean would be completely fucking empty. <laughs> yeah. 0% yeah. of them would be above 10% of their historic highs, as far as they could right. tell. According to data from a 15-year-old paper that was using data that was five years old at that time. Right. And everyone now agrees is irrelevant. Yeah. But again, like, this is one of the frustrating things because we can pick these nits all day and I'm, I'm, I'm always up for, for a good nitpick. But it's a matter of degree, not direction, you know? Like, yeah. the ocean won't be empty by 2048. It won't be close to empty by 2048, but it will be a hell of a lot more empty than it is now and it is already significantly emptier than it mm -hmm. was 100 years ago. Yep. It's still alarming. It's just not catastrophic. Yeah. And by 2048, we'll have plenty more environmental catastrophes <laughs> to worry about too. Yeah, we'll all be living underwater by then anyway. There's a couple of things. Um, I, th I think I want to go back a little bit when we were talking more about the MSC. I think for us and Gem, I'm going to say for you specifically, you're very nihilistic. And <laughs> why, thank you. <laughs> are these the Nazis? No, Johnny, these men are nihilists. There's nothing to be afraid of. These men are cowards. You 
bring a very critical eye to things. So, you know, the, the corporate blue washing and whatnot, the AstroTurf campaigns, this is not news to you and, and your distrusting nature makes it so that you wouldn't believe this yeah. <laughs> anyway, right? That being said, a lot of people do look at these kinds of things. A lot of individuals, sure. for many totally valid reasons, try to do their best and look at these kinds of things. And so trying to be as generous and charitable as possible, it's not even that people take these things as gospel. It's just they're trying to take something. They're trying yeah. to do something. And so if they can find a can of tuna that says ocean safe this was caught in a sustainable way they try to do that right so they're they're trying and they say ah good somebody's taking care of that yeah that's something that i don't need to worry about anymore well sure and also when it's like i live in winnipeg there are no tuna anywhere i can't go catch my own tuna or like go talk to somebody i'm gonna try to do the closest thing and is it lazy sure are there a million lazy things that we all do in this world every day absolutely right Again, I don't want to frame the people who have been looking at this to be like, oh, good, this is a better option, right? As it, and I don't think yeah. you were framing them yeah. negatively. I just wanted to make that point. And sure. so I think a lot of people did look towards that. And even relatively well-educated people, but just people who didn't know about this kind of stuff necessarily because some of these groups are sometimes it can be hard to know what is a pay-for-play kind of label and what is an actual like something that is recognized in some other kind of way you're kind of doing your best there so I think this opened a lot of people's eyes just to think a little bit differently about it or to understand this and this actually reminds me exactly of the um, Heart and Stroke Foundation, the Health Check Program. Do you <laughs> do you all remember that? Yeah. Yeah. And how I think it was Marketplace. Oh, I love that show. <laughs> CBC like investigative news shows. I watched so much of that when I was a teenager because apparently I was a big nerd, but I love them. <laughs> They did a really good one on homeopathy when like, the Winnipeg Skeptics was at its yeah, peak. Yeah, <laughs> and they, they've done good stuff on chiropractic and like Marketplace is an excellent show. So for any of our non-Canadian listeners, go check it out. CBC Marketplace and all of the Canadian listeners, you get CBC for free. Try it. Um, <laughs> anyway, Marketplace was one of the big things that really revealed that Heart and Stroke Foundation was doing this pay-for-play labeling for the health check things. So people were using the health check and heart and stroke is the cardiovascular society that relates to the public. And that does fundraising and things like that. Like for, for someone who's not in the medical field or the healthcare field, you know, heart and stroke as like the name of cardiovascular health and research and education for the public. People were buying these things because it's a trusted name and it is an organization that does great stuff, but it's good to call companies on their crap and very much to to do it in a public way as well because yeah. there are a lot of very well-meaning people who are trying to do the best they can with the knowledge that they have at the moment and to let them know that oh this company has been duping you it's not your fault but it's been duping you so that's what I wanted to say about that I think it's important to be generous and how People aren't just being lazy necessarily. They're just, they are trying to do something. Absolutely. And I, I would never frame it that way. I know. I hope that I would never frame it that way. Anyway. No, no, I know. I, I just, I think it's important to do that. And I think that that is a bit of public education. And maybe they'll take that and say, oh, okay. So this 
organization that I thought was totally marine friendly, whatever, is really just selling this kind of stuff or, you know, it's it's really not doing a whole lot to actually promote conservation, let's say. It's really just selling a label that makes it look like they're promoting conservation in ways. So maybe I'll think about any other labels that I really rely on like that. Maybe I'll look into them, right? Just plant that seed. Absolutely. And you have to ask yourself, and this is an important thing to ask yourself, living under capitalism, whenever you see a label like that from an independent organization, you should say to yourself, how is this organization, how could it be funded? Because the people who work there, you know, have to be paid for their labor, or they're all volunteers, and no no functional organization runs entirely on volunteers. Um, and I speak as somebody who's been involved in many organizations that do run entirely on volunteers. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, so you have to ask yourself how these organizations are funded. They're going to be taking some money in. Some of it is going to be via donations, but they're, they're going to be charging organizations money to certify themselves as, you know, ocean safe or sustainable or dolphin free or fair trade or organic. So it is not a clear bright line between pay for play and just making these organizations effectively pay for their own certification. So it's it's tough. Right. Like, I, I do think that they probably have done a lot to prevent many dolphins from being killed. Sure. And yeah, you can't ever guarantee that zero dolphins have been killed on any of these boats. Of course. But yeah. I think they have probably done a lot to help. And that is one way that they pay for their organization. Mm -hmm. That said, I think it is worth remembering the way that that kind of funding can end up providing a perverse incentive if everybody involved is not constantly on their guard about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also agree that not eating seafood at all is a better way to prevent dolphins from being killed than eating dolphin-free tuna. Uh-huh. Come join us on the veggie side, Ashlyn. <laughs> You're not a big seafood I don't need fan fish anyway. anyway. <laughs> like, <laughs> Ashlyn's on the right side of this one. <laughs> yeah, I'm on board with this. And as I've said many times, I think I am on the wrong side of history with regards to vegetarianism. <laughs> and again, I want to put in the caveat that we're not speaking about indigenous cultures having to give up their sustainable practices that they've done for millennia. This is sure. capitalist society. No, we're talking about horrifying capitalist economies of scale. <laughs> well, yeah. you know what? And, and that's something, too, that I, I, I really think it's the capitalist part of it, where food is this commodity where we're just trying to produce and then trying to use it all up once we've produced it. And it's just that's part of the problem, because I do sort of think that, like, if we all went back to more eating what is locally available in reasonable amounts kind of thing in some parts of the world like yeah there there would be meat eating necessary in some ways or it would really help to supplement a diet because of growth seasons and things like that but it's the scale of it it's you know again i'm i very seldom eat meat and i'm eating less and less animal products in general but it's the scale of it. That is the problem. The The fact that we've created this, whether it's land-based and especially sea-based, because we're, we're just taking so much wild from there, but 
it's the scale of it that we're pulling it all out as opposed to like taking a small amount to supplement whatever else we can grow and something if that's necessary depending on where you live. Like there are some parts of the world where it's just the terrain doesn't permit sufficient growth of foods in some ways. And so meat eating has been part of that culture. Mm-hmm. Us here on the prairies, like if we were to eat just local food, we produce a lot of pulses and that. So in terms of protein, we should probably be fine. But there might be some parts where meat eating would supplement. And again, we've, we're eating more meat than we ever have. Mm-hmm. Right. Like we just oh, a couple of weeks ago, there was another headline study confirming that, you know, since Neanderthal times and that we've been gorging ourselves on as many plants as we can get. Like we've we were never these merely carnivorous creatures that lost our way and started eating plants and fiber, heaven forbid. Like, Sorry, paleo folks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Laura, tell us how you feel about paleo again. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't meat that got us these giant overthinking problematic brains. I think you ought to know I'm feeling very depressed. Here's something to occupy you and take your mind off things. It won't work. I have an exceptionally large mind. It was plants. <laughs> so we don't need as much meat available. We don't need this stuff all the time in every way and in such high quantities. Like in one aspect of it, it's great that more people have access to more food. But on the other hand, it's still the, the richest people still have way more access you know, the, the the least privileged people still are missing out on it. So we're not getting a health equality from all of this. And there's so much wasted and there's so much excess that we just don't need. That was a really long way of saying, I think the capitalism is more the problem than the meat eating in general. Yeah. I think we need a drop that any time that we blame capitalism in an episode, we just throw the drop in. <laughs> like some sort of buzzer or something. Capitalism. Oh. One of the things that is really propping this this all up, and one of the reasons that capitalism is the problem, is that the duty in a capitalist system is always for increased profit and increased growth. Yep. You always have to feed the machine. And, and you can't feed it at a steady state. You have to feed it so much that yeah. then you need to build a bigger machine. Like you, you, it's never enough to just say, wow, we're doing this and we're chugging along and just keeping this going. No, we, there has to be more. I had two more things written down. Yeah, go for it. I wrote down herring farts. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember what I wanted to say about that, though, but that was a very entertaining part of the documentary. Herring talk by farting, and they make a consensus in their schools. Yeah, I remember what the documentary said, but clearly I wrote it down because I wanted to talk about it for some reason. Not just, probably not just because it was funny. I don't know. Uh, there was also that mysterious noise that turned out to be herring farts. Maybe I wanted to reference that. I feel like we talked about that. Anyway, there was this big mysterious noise that was annoying radar. And I think it was during World War II. And they thought it was like German U-boats coming to attack them or something. And uh, eventually they figured out it was just a lot of herring farts. <laughs> So that's the thing I wrote down. The other thing I wrote down was the piece around forced labor on fishing boats, yes. which is like a real big problem. Oh, yeah. Forced labor and murder. <laughs> they kind of go hand in hand, right? So that was horrifying. I looked into it a little bit and 
found that they're they're trying to use the AIS system that tells boats where they are in relation to other boats so they don't run into each other. Uh, they're trying to use that to police a little better, like to make sure that people aren't being exploited, but not a lot of forward momentum on that because it's really hard to police anything in international waters. Yeah. And, I mean, he did have other footage, like that drone footage of that man working in on a fisheries dock uh, writing help me or send help or something so that the drone could see it, but the the overseer couldn't. And that was terrifying, as were the interviews with men who had been abducted and made to work mm-hmm. for, one of them was over a decade on a Thai shrimp boat. And I, I wouldn't doubt their stories. I don't think he brought in actors and then had to flee Thailand because he that was part of it, was he had to flee Thailand because he was talking to these people. He had to flee Thailand uh, because he didn't get permits filming filming permits yeah uh now whether he tried to get filming permits i I kind of doubt but you know they probably would not have been granted uh either um denial of permits you know like you get uh protests and demonstrations broken up all the time because they didn't get permits but the permits you know ended up being Mm -hmm. denied uh or whatever so like you know yeah (laughs) yeah state will get you either way it's a technicality but it's anyway Oh, I totally forgot about that guy right in the beginning who was talking about how in the one place that you can still watch whaling from the shore. Taiji. Taiji, yeah. Taiji. So he was talking about how when you go to Taiji, you know, your room is bugged and the TV is recording you and yada yada. I was like, oh, okay, here we go. And then, like, he was really the only (laughs) guy like that in the movie. (laughs) Just an aside, I, that was the part where I thought we were going to get into the, oh, you know, this is where it becomes a ridiculous conspiracy movie, but no, just that guy. That was Rick O'Berry. Yeah, he seemed like a character. And I put down, is he Sea Shepherd or just paranoid? <laughs> this film was also made by the same producer who made The Cove, if any of you saw that, which is all about the the dolphin culling and that in Taiji. Oh, no, I didn't know that. And yeah. So I watched that one many years ago. It was definitely disturbing. It got you thinking about different things. It made you feel really bad for dolphins. As you should. As you should. Um, But like this one also had some criticisms about misrepresentations and, and things like that. I know the producer of this movie was involved with that. And I think Rick O'Berry was involved with The Cove as well. Probably. He probably has reason to feel like people are after him. <laughs> Those Sea Shepherd people seem a little unhinged. Yeah, I, um, I don't know. Uh, I... I've i donated to them before, full disclosure. Like, I, I heard that the founder was, like, kicked out of Greenpeace. Yep. And, like, Greenpeace is already, ooh, but... <laughs> yeah, he, he, he felt Greenpeace wasn't doing enough to stop it. Mm-hmm. He thought they were doing more policing than they were stopping, and he wanted to be more militant, so he founded Sea Shepherd. Back in my early 20s, I donated to both PETA and Sea Shepherd uh, for a couple of years without doing any research beyond what they have done in their promotions. So I just wanted to put that out there. I have not looked um, deeply into Sea Shepherd at all, but I I found their militancy uh, refreshing. Of <laughs> Honestly. course you did. I know you did. <laughs> Like, watching these corporate fishing ships come in off the coast of Liberia, taking advantage of the Civil War to just strip mine their oceans, it's disgusting, you know? It's Mm -hmm. terrible. And 
there is that that cheap thrill of watching pirate vigilantes come and like threaten them and say hey these fish are illegally caught get out yeah <laughs> we're boarding your ship etc i don't know uh like it's the same kind of thrill that you get from watching batman in one of the good batman takes you know <laughs> punch the hell out of some supervillain when the the cops of gotham are on the take or whatever you know like there are lots of problems obvious clear problems that i don't think i need to articulate for our listeners with <laughs> with vigilantism but it gets that get gets gets your blood pumping yeah that's fair they're doing something at least yeah they're doing something yeah. and one of the things doing that this documentary harps on and i think is broadly true whether or not the documentary muddles some of the specifics is that lots of people aren't really doing anything yeah and this is just going to keep happening. So regardless of whether Sea Shepherd is going to turn the tide, so to speak, it, it's nice to see them doing something. I mean, they've apparently done enough that they are officially banned by multiple courts from approaching Japanese boats, boats in various kinds of waters. Like, <laughs> they have pissed off a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, you mean you need to piss people off to get things to change? Yeah. Yeah. People might say, you know, if you're pissing people off, you're doing something right. No. <laughs> but in order to do something right, you do need to piss people off. Right. Yeah. Some people you know, it's, will. It's, it's, it's Not the, everyone. Uh, you got to invert that if. Yeah. But yeah. Anybody who willingly wants to spend months at sea is going to be a little unhinged. Like, they're a special kind of person, right? Think about it. Like, there is no escape. It is monotonous. As I was just listening to a 99% Invisible episode about abandoned ships, which is very interesting. Yeah, I listened to that as well. Not the same situation as, like, the Thai fishermen that were in this movie, but excellent episode. Go listen to it. You know, you're stuck out there. You're at the mercy of the sea. You are constantly trying to keep the rust and water out, like, constantly. So if you're like, yeah, that sounds like the life for me, man and I get to ram boats, you're a special <laughs> kind of person. Like, it's just it's just the kind of person you are. <laughs> like half of the other hipsters, in the early part of the pandemic, I read Moby Dick. <laughs> and I mean, apart from the whaling, it seemed okay. <laughs> I, I could live at sea. We are two mariners, a ship's sole survivors, in this belly of a whale. Its ribs are ceiling beams, its guts are carpeting. I guess we have some time to kill. I want to have no responsibilities and go off to sea. But did, weren't you listening, Lauren? There's lots of responsibilities at sea, like exactly. keeping the sea out of your boat. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the nutrition aspect of it, because obviously, like, this fish is getting eaten. And so... There was a couple of things that I, I wanted to bring up. One, I actually heard about this movie through like a Facebook page that I'm a part of for other nutrition professionals. And there was a really interesting discussion on there. And I think it was really useful. And one of the challenges is that a lot of the major health guidelines promote eating fish and eating it over land animals and uh, eating it at least twice a week for each person and if not more for certain health conditions. 
So we have this now, at least in a lot of the Western, like European and, and North American worlds, that is becoming mantra in a way yeah. for our health guidelines. And so it is a bit of a, it's always a bit of a challenge because that is the recommendation for things, especially if we're trying to convince people to say eat less beef, for example, then it goes to fish. But then we have a lot of problems with the fish. So reconciling as health providers and, and just as the public, those, those guidelines and how can we be making guidelines like that? So then that was getting me thinking and, and a lot of the people on the page, which I really appreciated, thinking about that balance of the supremacy of human health. And yeah. then especially in our wellness culture world in North America and many parts of Europe and other parts of the world, um, it's not just enough to have enough. Uh, again, like we take a very capitalistic view of our health, like we have to have the best health. It has to be optimized. Ugh. <laughs> so um, can you tell me about the algae, Laura? Because I didn't know that. Is that true? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's so cool. So in the film, they talk about how omega-3 fatty acids are not actually made by the fish. They are made by the algae that the fish eats. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then when you squeeze the fish, all of the, <laughs> all of the good acids come out. But we could just eat algae, apparently. So this is something that I do know now, but was not taught in nutrition school. That, yeah, it's it's the algae. So it's just a bioaccumulation thing. And so salmon and some of our fattier fish have a lot of omega-3 fats in them because they eat a lot of smaller fish that eat a lot of smaller fish that eat a lot of algae. And so just because of their food chain, where they live, like these types of algae and, and then which other fish they're eating, it accumulates in the the fish's tissue so it's not produced by the fish itself it's not it, they they just store a, a heck of a lot of it so the same way that mercury bioaccumulates the omega-3 fatty acids bioaccumulate exactly and we could just skip the mercury and have the fatty acids yes <laughs> can they harvest enough algae to give humans enough of that so I'm not an expert in this area, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that they can. And in fact, they do. So you can buy vegan omega-3 supplements that are DHA and EPA, mostly DHA. And what they do is they farm algae for it and they extract the DHA, which is the, the most important omega-3 fatty acid, if you will. And that's what they put in there. So we're already doing it. It's just that it's a small scale. So... There's a couple of challenges. One is fish oil was and could be partly a byproduct. So, you know, you're you're already fishing these fish. You're going to fish them for meat. And then you can turn some of the other bits of them into oil. So you get a, two products instead of one. It's their leather. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, like, why would we do this other thing? So in terms of for everybody, I don't know. But there are a lot of people on this planet that aren't eating omega-3s from fish as it is or very little from fish because they live in places where there isn't a lot of fish or it was just never culturally part of their diet. We want to keep in mind too that fish are the main source of the long chain omega-3s but we can get omega-3s from plants 
that are grown right here as well. And they do convert at a small rate and there needs to be more research, but it is possible to get our omega-3s. And if you did need an omega-3 supplement, like first of all, most people probably don't need an omega-3 supplement. In a few cases, it can be helpful if you have, say, established cardiovascular disease or if you have certain blood lipid conditions, it can be helpful as a treatment. But then in that case, too, those are more pharmaceutical uses, which we do use pharmaceuticals from other animals in other in other ways as well. I have a very important question. Yes. Does the oil from the algae taste as bad? So I've never seen it. At, well, no, that's not true. What am I saying? I have a bottle of it in my fridge. Yeah, <laughs> I was about to say. <laughs> it's weird because they always flavor it. So the one that we have in our fridge is lemon flavored, which is weird, like a lemony oil. So I, it, it doesn't taste bad. It's just weird, mm. I think. So I don't know if it tastes as bad. Like it's going to have a marine kind of flavor because like Everything from the sea has a marine kind of flavor. If you've ever eaten seaweed, like it tastes fishy, even though it is not fish, right? I was going to say, uh, it tastes like nori. Fish fish doesn't taste fishy. It tastes oceany. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know, but if you take the capsule and you can get capsules, it's, I don't think that the fishy burps would be any worse than fish-based ones. <laughs> um, so yes, we can get our omega-3 from from algae sources. And that is something that we, especially if we are looking at pharmaceutical uses for omega-3s and and ways to help supplement diets and promote um, uh, brain development in kids and things like that. Like for example, omega-3s are added into infant formulas because cow's milk is, especially most of the cow's milk that we get, is pretty low in omega-3 because cows eat, get their omega-3 from eating grasses and things like that. So they their milk doesn't need to be super high in it. Anyway, we do have it for important uses. And, and again, there are some people who need more of it, but we should really be looking at these algal sources and really putting fuel into that. I don't know if we can get enough for everybody, but we probably don't need as much as a lot of the health gurus will tell us, especially if we're getting more omega-3 from things like the nuts and seeds that are pretty widely available to us on land here. So a point I want to make, which is interesting, is that I learned a lot about human nutrition, and I'm always learning about human nutrition. I don't think I will ever reach a point where I feel like I have learned quite a lot and I know much. I'm generally like I've been doing this for a decade and I feel like I know nothing. So there's a lot to know. But in my schooling, food is just a thing that appears and you can have choices in it. And we're looking at it from a health lens, which is unimportant angle, but it's not the only important angle. So even things like these omega-3s, I learned that fish were an excellent source of omega-3. I learned that uh, flax seeds were an excellent source of omega-3. I never learned that the omega-3 isn't actually produced by the fish mm -hmm. until I listened to Gastropod. Excellent podcast. You mm -hmm. all should definitely go listen to Gastropod after you listen to this one. So it took me, you know, years and years after graduating and having a keen interest in food, in, in everything about food, which not everybody does, to learn that, oh, it's actually a bioaccumulation thing. 
And that's important to know because that makes a difference in our decision making and thinking like, oh, well, I have to eat salmon because that's the only way I'm going to get my omega-3 in and I need it for my health versus, oh, it can in fact come from other places and it's exactly the same stuff and I can be healthy without the salmon. So the omega-3 thing is an important one and, and thinking about food as not just this thing for humans, but it is... We are part of this ecosystem and in our quest for human health, we've always needed to ask these questions, but we are at the point where we have no excuse to not ask these types of questions about our foods and about how do we marry these, the health of humans and the health of the environment and looking at ourselves as part of this system rather than just taking from it. That was a really long monologue. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. It triggered in my brain that when I was in college in 2006, when I went back to school, I was like third author on a paper about like some of the amazing things that algae can do both for the environment and for humans. I'm going to have to dig that paper out and see if the omega-3 stuff was in there or if it was just about um, oxygenation. Cool. Mm -hmm. Um, I have another nitpicky thing that I wanted to bring up. When they talked about fish farming, which they didn't talk a lot about, and that's a question, again, that I hear a lot from people. So we, a lot of people have heard definitely the bad parts of fish farming because it it really is like feedlots of the sea, right? Which nobody likes to see a ton of cattle just being jammed together waiting for slaughter. Nobody likes to see a ton of fish just jammed together (laughs) waiting for slaughter, right? And they do produce a lot of waste, just like... Just like that. Again, I am not a fish farm specialist. What I wanted to say with this, though, is questions that I hear from people is that people have heard fish farms are actually really bad for the environment. So I don't want to do that. Or they're full of disease and the fish are actually less healthy in that. So I don't want to participate in that. So then I best go to the wild stuff. That is the train of thought for various reasons. And again, I don't want to fault anybody I can see how this train of thought happens, but that's part of the challenge here is that people have lost trust in these obvious industrial production systems, but the wild still seems like it's natural and healthy. And there's one guy sitting on a little dinghy with a line pulling in each salmon. Like that's not what's happening at all, but that's the image that we that we have with that. But with the fish lots, what are they called? Fish farms. farms. Thank you. It's a tough thing because they really remind us that we've turned animals into commodities and we're used to somewhat seeing chickens and cows being commodities, but we're not used to thinking of fish in that way. But a totally nitpicky thing is that they were disparaging how they add pigment particles to the fish food so that they can choose the color of the fish's flesh. And they're like talking about, oh, so what we're doing is we're serving gray fish with pink coloring in it. And I'm like, yeah, that's what the salmon do when they're in the wild. They eat (laughs) stuff that turns them pink. Like if their food didn't turn them pink anymore, they wouldn't be pink. Like, hello. Those flamingos aren't really pink. They're just painted pink by the food they eat. From inside. Yeah. It was just, it was, it was such an annoying thing 
that bit drove me a little bit bananas because it was like, you're talking about some really important things. And then you had to go in and say, oh, food coloring is bad. And it's like, but it's not even like they're dropping in some kind of toxic red-based dye or something. They're just giving the fish food oh. that is naturally red. Like, that's all they're doing. That's why fish tastes like that. It's all that uh, red number 40. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Swedish fish. <laughs> can you imagine God. that's what they're actually feeding these poor salmon just like barrels and barrels of swedish fish candies <laughs> poor salmon those yeah. are not good candies i felt and this is sort of building off your point that this documentary would come up to the precipice of making a really good point and then either pull back or take a hard left to were painting the salmon yeah yeah like they would just like if they weren't sure about their hard point then they would just go with the cheap point yeah and that was frustrating and it, even again like I'm maybe I'm asking too much but I'm very surprised that this guy who loves the ocean so much it seemed like he it didn't even dawn on him to not eat fish uh, so until I, I like think, like he, he figured, I think it did well, no, it did throughout it's, the documentary. Oh, no. But, uh, no, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. What? This is the thing about documentaries. And I mean, you're going to accuse me of being nihilistic. That whole narrative is totally made up nonsense. He wasn't actually, you know, p picking this stuff off the beach every morning and then thinking, oh, plastic straws are the thing. I've got to get rid of the plastic straws. And then through the course of making this documentary, he's slowly coming to this realization. Like, I mean, I'm sure he learned some things. But th this narrative arc is is not legitimate. That's, well, like, that, I'm that's not... completely implausible to me. <laughs> I mean, some people are pretty naive. I guess. You know, <laughs> I feel with this one, he was sort of coming at it in a, hey, I didn't know this, because it is so scattered and it tries to make so many points. And I yeah. realize that there are <laughs> that's, that's fair. a million different ways that the various fishing industries around the world are bad, but I felt he could have narrowed his focus and not taken <laughs> us on his mental journey. Yeah, I get that he was all set up to talk about dolphin hunting in Taiji and then realize pretty quickly that like that documentary was already made. And <laughs> so uh, I guess we're going to do some other stuff. But, you know, you, you, you could have just started elsewhere in the documentary you didn't have to you did we didn't have to see you at sea world all the way through and every beach you went time, to i guess yeah i guess so but one of my archaeology profs once told a whole group of us if you're ever writing an application letter and you want someone with a doctorate to take you seriously do not start with ever since i was a child i have loved playing in the dirt oh god yes <laughs> apparently they all start that way and they're all just so sick of hearing about it like we don't care if you like playing in the sand as a child what have you done as an adult to qualify to enter this place of learning i thought that was funny that's always stuck with me don't talk about your childhood when applying for professional things <laughs> does anyone else have any major points they'd like to talk about no i i talked about all of it yeah uh like yeah no i know Jem, you were talking about like individual choice and how it is not as important as what big corporations do oh sure yeah um you know, you get this with recycling, you get this with... Um, everything. 
everything, you know, like the way, the way we are trained as consumers to make our voices heard is by making individual purchasing choices. And the fact of the matter is that the impact you have on the world at the cash register is immeasurably small. Um, you know, with large consumer actions, boycotts and like that, you know, you perhaps have a hope of making a dent, but not really. Um, but, uh, convincing us that we can make meaningful change through our purchasing decisions is a great way to prevent us from actually making meaningful change. And what we will often see is large corporate interests who have a vested interest in the the status quo will encourage consumer choice consumers to to make their choices heard you know in their purchasing decisions because that is a way of ensuring that the status quo does not change you deciding whether or not to recycle that plastic bottle you know it's great for not making your streets look you know like they're covered in trash um but from an environmental impact standpoint, it's it's essentially going to make no difference. Uh, what you need to do is bully the corporations into doing what's right because they're the ones who are in power. Agreed. Food waste is a big one for that. Throwing out the moldy cauliflower from your fridge is nothing compared to what happens at these factory farms or at even grocery stores where they lock their dumpsters and throw out perfectly good food and, and that that's actually a big part of this documentary too like when talking about uh bycatch mm-hmm. um you know like they're 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 killing as many fish <laughs> more quoted all sorts of different figures but uh, at least as many fish and just throwing them back in the ocean um because it's not the target catch anyway uh parting thoughts on this documentary Capitalism bad. Capitalism. Oh, his overall point was good, but he didn't make it well. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yep. It was like a poorly written undergrad essay. With some flashy graphics. I I think it's fine. You know, I came into this show worried that I wouldn't have anything to say about it because my general thought was, eh, I didn't enjoy watching this. I agree with it. It annoys me. I, I, you know, I don't need to see that many cetaceans beheaded. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yep. There was too much blood in this documentary. Yeah. I, I did actually like his sit down interview with that whaler at the end. I thought he let the whaler have, like, say his piece. I think part of what made that good is that, yeah, he was, it was a genuine person who is doing essentially an indigenous way of, of hunting. Like this has been going on in, in here for a very long time. Like it's, and it's done in, it, it's not a commercial interest. It's not a, yeah, it was a different type of person that he was talking to. And there was just a genuineness to what the the whaler was saying. But he didn't, the still the documentarian didn't stick the landing with that interview. Didn't come up to saying indigenous practices that involve land management are the best way to do this. He just kind of left it hanging. You're supposed to make that connection yourself, but he didn't come out and say it. 
Yeah, that's that's complicated, and it's, I'm not sure that it's something that we necessarily want to get into here. Um, no, Ashlyn's dying. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do something nice. Okay. <laughs> Please. You can figure out an ending to this. <laughs> <laughs> We didn't quite stick the landing on this either, but let's let's keep moving forward. I'm Maybe not we're mad deal if, with Netflix. I'm not mad if people watch it and get inspired to eat less fish, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's something that's going to change the world. Oh no, Netflix oh. documentaries are not. Don't worry, nothing's going to change the world. Jam, I know. Oh. <laughs> Changing whether you like it or not. Anybody have a something nice ready to go? I do, actually. Believe it or not. Can't wait. Um, I think it was last week I heard about and downloaded a game called Dorf Romantic. Oh, yeah. And it's available on Steam. And Dorf means village. I know that because my mother's maiden name is Dorfman. Uh, <laughs> so I've known <laughs> it from an early age. And it's basically just playing Catan by yourself and... It's really sweet and it's very low key and it's very it's a very gentle game where you're just placing these tiles with villages or trees or something on them and you have to build up it'll say you know you need 300 trees and you build them up on there and it's a very nice and gentle game and I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, I I have the the demo for that game because it was released as part of mm-hmm. the the Itchio bundle for racial justice uh, last last year. Okay. Uh, and it's, uh, hmm. yeah, it's it's lovely. I, I haven't checked out the full version yet. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't have all of the features yet, but... Yeah, like still you early can... access, I think. Yeah. And I think it's like $11 on Steam. Yeah, under $12. Just nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I meant to buy Ashlyn a copy and I haven't yet, so... <laughs> That's all right. I haven't had time. <laughs> My something nice is that I I have been very resistant to replacing the hole in my life where singing with people used to be Mm. uh, because singing with people over Zoom is not good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You you essentially can't because of the way that their software works. Only one person can be heard at a time uh, and it becomes just a garbled mess and they have recently instituted like a music mode where you can sometimes get your instruments to play uh, across other people so it's getting better but it's still not sitting around a campfire singing with people but this weekend as part of the conference I was at I went to an hour of just singing together with some people and we had one person who was an excellent acapella singer and she just sang for basically the whole hour and we sang along in our own spaces and I was just able to sing for an hour and it felt really good and it really filled some of that hole in my heart and uh, she actually does it like every day apparently it starts at eight o'clock in the morning which is not my favorite time of day but there's also an afternoon one and I'm gonna start going to that I think every cool. week because that just sounds really nice and chill lovely that does sound really nice so my something nice uh is gospels of the flood by jonas kairatzis uh with sound and music by chris christadulu narrated by peter wingfield so gospels of the flood is a seven episode audio drama uh it's 
it's a parable, I guess, uh, about loss of faith in a world that's slowly being reclaimed by the sea. Uh, it is free. Uh, you can find it on your podcast player of choice. Uh, and it's beautiful. Uh, I uh, highly recommend it. The episodes are only like 15 minutes long, so it's not a big commitment. Uh, and it's it's full of lovely music and quotable bits. Uh, also, uh, I want to shout out uh, the previous collaboration between these creators, a game uh, like Lauren's Something Nice called The Sea Will Claim Everything, which is a lovely little uh, point-and-click fantasy adventure game, uh, kind of melding philosophy and comedy and lots and lots of reading. Um, Jonas Kairatzis, uh was also one of the writers on The Talos Principle, uh, for people who might have played that game, and uh, Chris Christodoulou is probably best known for doing uh, the music for the Risk of Rain uh, games. So, yeah. That's my, that's my something nice. I, as usual, have a hard time coming up with my something nice. Uh, I'm, I'm quite busy at the moment. Um, so I really don't have a lot of time to do just fun pleasure stuff. But we have fish that we got a couple months ago. And for any listeners, if I already said this was my something nice, there's still my something nice. <laughs> so I like taking care of our two little guppies. I it was sort of a project I've been thinking about all through the pandemic. And so I've been enjoying that. And I keep outfitting myself with all sorts of like water test kits and chemicals to make the pH balance right and all that kind of all that kind of jazz. And it's I kind of like it. I find that stuff so intimidating. Like props to you for doing all of that. It's really, yeah, like I, I did too. And I still kind of do. And I'm, again, I'm by no means an expert. I'm just starting to learn, but they've got everything you need. And, and like the test strip bottle tells you exactly what to do. It's like, okay, if it's not in this range, go get this thing and add this much. And if, if it's not in this range, get this thing and add this much. And they're just guppies. So they're like pretty hardy fish. I'm not doing anything that's very temperamental about the ranges of things so and uh we're past the point where we need to uh where we need to worry about huxley overfishing the fish tank yeah huxley hasn't tried to fish in the fish tank for at least a month now <laughs> did he make little hooks out of paper clips no no just hands and, and we also have a t like a little net for the occasions when we do have yeah. to take the fish out. And Huxley knows exactly how to use that. But no, no, not not too much. So yeah, I uh, I let the kids name the fish, but I I take care of the fish. Aside from most days, one of the kids will feed the fish for me. And I, I like taking care of the fish. My other something nice was that uh, I dug out some as I was moving a, a flower bed yesterday I dug out some earthworms and gave it to Huxley and the little neighbor boy and they both loved the earthworms and named them Snuggly both of them named their worms Snuggly Snuggly one and Snuggly two yeah and then um I kept getting requests for the rest of the day to find more Snugglies Aww, <laughs> and it was adorable. very cute yeah. yes the kiddos just loved their little wormies named Snuggly Adorable. Well, that's it, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me again. Thank you, Ashlyn. Thank you. Thank you. I think our talking about the documentary took longer than the actual documentary. Yeah, that makes about. That's typical. That, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone, and have a good night. Good night. Good, good night. night.
Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble, with mix and tech production by Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James. And this episode was edited by Jem Newman. So long and thanks for all the fish. So sad that it should come to this. We try to warn you all the I know. I mostly just like to make him feel bad. Did it, well, did either of you? <laughs> I'm I'm a really good spouse. Did either of you read his Facebook status from today? Pure gold. Love to return home from Cal Tire. Oh, yeah. I realize that I have forgotten to put the tires in the trunk of the car before dropping them off to be changed. Yeah. So how did you get home? Did you take the bus or walk or? I jo- I jogged. That okay. was that then, was his death jog, and he yeah. came in the door like <laughs> panting and looking like he's gonna die. And like I just said, "Flushed, beat like, red." Just and he's like just labored breathing, and I'm like, "You put the tires in the car, right?" And he's like, "What? <laughs> what do you mean? You told me to just take the car. You told me, can you drop the car off at Cal Tire?" <laughs> So that's what I did. He's a doctor in training, guys. So he will have people who will do that for him. (laughs) It's true. It's true. And so how were the tires gotten to the place? Laura walked to Cal Tire, picked up the car, brought it home, put the tires in, then drove the car back an hour later and walked back home again. Oh, boy. While Jem was in class. Good times. (laughs) Uh, Anyway. Yeah, I just like to make him feel bad in front of people we like, too. Good spouse. Good spouse. Well, we still love him and you. We do. You can look at um, the recent documentary from... Hold on. Ken Burns. Sorry, I just needed to imagine, like, the, the slide zoom in my head to remember what that guy's name was. It was just, it was, it was such an annoying thing. And it was- We're painting the roses red. We're painting the roses red. I don't know what that is. Alice in Wonderland. I have read that book and seen that movie and I remember almost nothing about it. (laughs) Good book. (laughs) It is good. From the tiny bits I remember. Anyway. Uh, And it's beautiful. Uh, I uh, highly recommend it. I did not listen to it under the best of circumstances. I had uh, I had been ready to listen to it for a while, but hadn't got around to it uh, until I, for some reason, decided to undertake the Death Nut Challenge. Uh, God, that was fun to watch. By eating a a series of increasingly spicy nuts. 
<laughs> I documented that on YouTube. Uh, if anybody wants to give it a watch, but it um, it was fine. I enjoyed it, but uh, my my gastrointestinal system did not. <laughs> So I was lying on the floor face down for a couple of Wait, hours. What? Ex- whoa, 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 whoa. What part of that did you enjoy? <laughs> His listening material. They were the tasty. attention. Um, yes, it must be. <laughs> You're a psychopath. Oh, my God. As someone who had to deal with you and watched you fall face first, flat on your stomach onto the basement floor and do nothing but moan for about four hours and leave me to deal with the children while we all laughed at you. What part of that was enjoyable? The family so... togetherness of laughing at daddy. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. It is very funny though. Is, Huxley keeps him. asking him when he's going to do the next one because we have another package. So he has <laughs> to do another death nut challenge. <laughs> anyway. So <laughs> to, to, to get back to the point, like actually eating it from a, from a spice, uh, like tolerance perspective was fine. It's just my about half an hour to 45 minutes afterward, I, I was crippled with stomach pain <laughs> and basically taken out for the rest of the day. I the, the only thing that stopped me from going to the hospital, I was in so much pain, was the fact that I knew I would have to explain myself. <laughs> anyway, while I was... Uh, incapacitated. Uh, incapacitated. <laughs> I finally took the plunge and listened to this... Um, this audio drama, Gospels of the Flood, uh, and uh, I highly recommend it. It's it's lovely. Um... We take a very capitalistic view of our health. Like, we have to have the best health. It has to be optimized. Ugh. <laughs> what a good uh. Didn't we just do a whole damn episode about that? <laughs> hey, can we take that uh from Laura and make that our capitalism drop? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great uh. Capitalism. Ugh. excellent got it okay i'm glad i could be of service capitalism oh